You're listening to the UBC Medicine Learning Network. Hello, welcome to COVID-19, Update for Healthcare Professionals, Voices from the Frontlines podcast. You may notice a few audio imperfections due to the live recording of this session. It was recorded remotely from the presenter's homes and without professional equipment. I uh, can't believe how uh, how quickly time has flown, and we're now in week six or seven in COVID. I think we started uh, pretty early on in, in week one or two. Um, we have uh, the same uh, group of physicians uh, that have been with us since the get-go. Uh, again, my name is Omar Ahmad. I'm the Department Head of Emerge and Critical Care for Island Health. I am an Emerge and Critical Care physician working in Victoria. Uh, I have the pleasure, again, of having with us uh, Dr. Adam Thomas, uh, who is a uh, emergency physician uh, working in Victoria and is currently finishing up his ICU fellowship in uh, Vancouver. He um, is uh, one of the co-authors of the IBCC book um, and has a significant international acclaim uh, with his work with IBCC as well as uh, with the Palm Crypt uh, team. Uh, Dr. Mario Francis Pergassum is also an emergent ICU physician uh, working in Victoria and in Vancouver and uh, has been with us from the beginning and I think his, uh, we'll chat a little bit about his recent publication. Uh, Danish Ahmad is uh, also an EM, uh, and, uh, EM and ICU physician working in New York City and uh, has been with us from the get-go and his insights as to how things have been um, going in New York has been very uh, elucidating. Um, and uh, finally, we have Dr. Donovan McDonald here in the background, our uh, senior emergency medicine uh, resident who has been uh, you should be using making this work well for us. Um, so in, uh, in terms of uh, disclosures, uh, we really don't have any uh, to speak of. We do want to say that we were uh, termed experts at the beginning of all this. We wanted to say that none of us are experts. We, uh, we're all clinicians that are trying the best to learn and keep on top of uh, keep on top of the literature as it uh, comes towards us. Um, as, uh, as we've said in previous um, podcasts and previous webinars, uh, what we say uh, may change, and certainly the things we have said over the last number of weeks have changed um, as we've learned more and more about the disease. So what we say today applies to today. Uh, things are changing daily. There's a significant amount of literature, uh, and we're calling the literature, and Adam does a great job of informing the provincial working group uh, for critical care on daily updates on the literature, but uh, there's varied literature and we are all have to be aware that we have to take it with a grain of salt um, and, uh, and see how it applies to our practice. And again, these things are changing. Lots of controversies in the literature uh, as well. Um, in terms of conflicts or uh, disclosures, I do want to mention that uh, Mario, Adam, and myself work with uh, Rosie Outreach Support Program, which is for rural physicians who um, can reach an intensivist 24-7 through an app. The app can be downloaded through the uh, website rosytelehealth.com. On this website is various uh, information as well in regards to COVID, but also other, uh, other diseases that uh, are of interest to critical care emergency physicians, and in particular, our rural colleagues. Um, Sources of truth, uh, as we've said, they're uh, at every podcast. I'm sorry we have to belabor this point, but there are many, many different sources of truth out there, and there's many sources of, uh, of misinformation as well. And so we always like to say the sources of truth that we use and we trust. So CAPE, the Canadian Association of Emergency Physicians, is, is great, and they've done uh, weekly webinars as well that I highly recommend. The BC Center for Disease Control, uh, of course, is excellent and has uh, frequent updates almost on a daily basis. 
and any of the work that comes out of the uh, Provincial Critical Care Working Group will be posted on the BC CDC website, so lots of great guidelines in terms of PPE and code blue management and uh, uh, oxygenation therapy and drug uh, therapy, etc. EMRAP is great. Um, the International Book, the Internet Book of Critical Care is, is also fantastic. Um, that's uh, work that uh, is done by Adam Thomas. Uh, Evidence-Based Medicine is, is a for-profit uh, site, but they do have a free section for uh, COVID resources, as many uh, organizations now do. And uh, Donish recently published some papers uh, that are um, available through EB Medicine for free. Um, and of course, going to your island health or your, sorry, not your, you're going to your local um, health authority is very important, be that Vancouver Coastal, Island Health, Razor Health, et cetera, if we're looking for, for sources of truth. Uh, what we speak about, again, will be applicable to our particular regions. Uh, CMAJ has done a great job in, uh, in keeping us updated as well. And of course, we're all a big fan of uh, Dr. Bonnie Henry, who uh, speaks to us daily and uh, keeps us posted and uh, her, uh, video conferences and transcripts are available uh, broadly online. Um, as we always do, talking a little bit about epidemiology, we won't uh, belabor these slides uh, too much at all. We'll quickly uh, rip through it, but this is the only disease where I've actually found epidemiology to be quite fascinating, and it's been really fascinating to watch. Normally, you sort of uh, quickly skip over epidemiology. Uh, every time we speak, the, uh, the case numbers seem to, uh, to double. So the first time we chatted, there were 500,000 cases confirmed. Now the second time a million, uh, the third time two million, and now we're just under four million. Um, if you look at the the death rates here internationally, about uh, 260,000, which uh, translates, if you do the, the math directly, you'll be very misled into having a very high case fatality rate. But we really don't know what the denominator is, and so we out of the almost 400 million cases, there's many, many more, hundreds of thousands, likely millions more cases. So the denominator is actually much, much lower, uh, or much higher, I should say. So the case fatality rate is much, much lower than what we think it is. And we think probably in the order of anywhere from 0.5% to maybe as high as 2%, but uh, we won't know until this is all over. Uh, in terms of how Canada is doing, we've been doing very, very well, as you know. And uh, here in red, you can see the, uh, the Canadian curve. Uh, and uh, on the bottom is the number of days um, since we had the first 500 cases. And the, the y-axis is a logarithmic scale. Um, so you can see that the United States, Spain, Italy, significantly uh, ahead of us. And Canada is doing quite well. Um, if you look at um, BC in particular, compared to the rest of the countries, we're doing exceptionally well. Um, and even as we all know, compared to the rest of Canada, we're doing very well also. So internationally, BC as a province is well ahead of the game, and we're very, very proud of that, and as should our uh, community for being a part of uh, the main reason for flattening this curve. Um, in terms of our province itself, we've had uh, very few cases over the last number of days, and uh, our cases continue to go down. Most of the cases are in Vancouver Coastal and Fraser Health, which uh, goes along with where our population is most uh, heavily concentrated. The most recent cases that we had today uh, were related to a cluster, and uh, the ones that weren't related to a cluster were related to direct contact with somebody who was positive uh, that we already knew of. And so uh, the, case, uh, the cases remain very uh, in control and traceable. Um, just to go over this very, very quickly, um, this is really interesting stuff. So in terms of uh, cases, it's a 50-50 distribution between uh, the female and male sex, though the males tend to have a higher mortality rate uh, in the 
anywhere between 70 to 80 percent. Um, and the mean age of hospitalization is about 77 percent. Median age in death is 85 years of age. So this does, obviously, we know uh, predominantly affect the elderly. And the younger populations that do get affected often have uh, comorbidities uh, associated with them. So the next few slides, all these slides are publicly available. This slide's very interesting, was published yesterday by um, BCCDC and the ministry. And uh, what it shows is the outcome for healthcare workers. And at first, it's a very scary slide because it, it shows that of the uh, 428, uh, of, four, of all the cases, 428 uh, positive cases in BC were of uh, healthcare workers which actually uh, amounts to 21% of all cases. So at first glance, that's certainly very, very concerning. Um, and overall, it is concerning. But the, the, if it's of any consolation, uh, a lot of these were folks who unfortunately were within uh, the long-term care facilities and, of course, were aware of the, uh, of the outbreaks that happened there. Trying to tease that out, I've been told that these were predominantly from before, um, from the early days before we, uh, we knew that these outbreaks were happening. And so since that time, this number has gone down and the number of healthcare workers that continue to get infected is very, very low. I know that in Island Health, the only single healthcare worker that, uh, that was proven to be infected was, uh, did not, uh, was, not pre was not disposed to COVID in hospital, but received it through another contact uh, outside of hospital. So that's reassuring. And I'm not sure um, if Adam or Mario, you know much about uh, your um, exposure rates in uh, Fraser Health or in Vancouver Coastal, but ours are very reassuringly low. Yeah, we're doing that study with our highest risk um, nursing staff and physicians right now. So hopefully we get the serology back, but um, as in these pharyngeals that are positive, very low. Uh, quite low in Fraser as well, but uh, we, we, again, waiting on more data. So we're very proud of this next slide. We know that uh, early case reports coming out of China and then Italy were saying that the fatality rates for folks that uh, made it into the ICU and needed intubation was uh, anywhere from 40 to 50 percent, and uh, in some case reports were even higher than that. And uh, the statistic, thankfully, is not born to be true here in, uh, in British Columbia. Uh, we've only had a, a case, uh, a death rate of 14%. Um, and so we're, we're proud of that. I mean, of course, we don't want anyone to die at all, but we were worried that we would have a much higher uh, fatality rate, so 14% compared to the rest of the world. We're happy that, that, it, that, it's, that, uh, that it's, it's not as high as we were predicting. And I think it's gonna, it speaks to uh, many different things, but... I think we can theorize, and we won't ever really know the answer, but I think it comes back down to our uh, community members really flattening the curve and allowing us in hospital not to see these major surges in patients. And so we were able to uh, give everyone individualized, excellent care like we always do. And I think in other centers where they're so overwhelmed, I don't think they were able to give that, that level of care. I think we've also learned from a lot of other centers, and thank you to, to Danish for sharing with us his experiences, because I think um, learning from him and him sharing his experiences really helped us as well, and going from the early days of trying to intubate everyone to sort of being much more thoughtful and giving each patient individualized care, I think really made a big difference. Um, so the number of cases that we have in the ICU in BC, we can see continues to uh, to come down. The uh, the highest uh, 
curve you see is from Fraser Health and then followed by Vancouver Coastal. And you can see that the other health authorities uh, really had very low cases throughout. Uh, and despite having low cases, continued to drop from, uh, from the levels that we had seen earlier, which were never particularly high. Um, if we continue to the, the little uh, the, the bar graph here shows the number of cases we have in the ICU uh, over time. And you can see around April uh, 6th, we peaked at about 70 odd cases. And since that time, we've been steadily going down. The purple curve shows the trajectory that if we continue to socially isolate, those numbers will continue to drop and be uh, well below 10 by the end of, uh, by the end of May. Um, so very reassuring stuff. I'm not going to belabor this too much. This is all public access, and I'm sure people have seen this um, modeling, and it's very, very interesting modeling and, and speaks to what's to come as we move forward. And so this is what we call dynamic compartmental modeling, and it's showing what our, in, our prevalence will be depending on how much we continue to socially isolate and physically distance ourselves. So the first one shows that if we um, go up to... Right now, we're about 60, 60, 30% socially distancing. So meaning we, we've decreased our social distancing to 30% of our norm. And uh, with that, if you look at case one, we'll see that eventually, on uh, the first graph, you'll see that eventually by middle of May, and certainly by July, for sure, we'll have no cases. Um, whereas if we see in the second graph in the middle here, if we uh, increase our contact to 60%, so we're only socially distancing by 40%, you'll see that there will be a slight uptick in the curve, in the, in the, uh, the tail of this curve, but uh, it won't be a huge surge. It'll be something that we have the capacity within hospital to deal with. And uh, the benefits of doing this are that uh, we'll be able to deal with patients that will be exposed. Hopefully, we'll be increasing immunity, um, and we'll have the capacity within hospital to provide excellent care. If you look at the next uh, graph over to the right, you'll see that if we go from uh, 60% up to 80%, so meaning 80%, uh, only 20% social distancing, uh, you'll see that there's a very rapid uptick in cases, and we will see a, a pretty significant curve, and pretty quickly as well. So we want to obviously avoid that at all at all costs. Um, so this is a scary uh, graph from uh, from the states, and supposedly leaks from the CDC is published on the uh, in the New York Times as well as the Washington Post. Um, and showing that the trajectory of the states right now, if they continue on the trajectory they're on, they'll be seeing by the 1st of June up to 4,000 deaths per day. Um, and you can sort of see the blue dotted lines are the reported deaths so far, and the, uh, the red uh, solid line is the modeled uh, deaths. And so they're even above and beyond the, uh, the model death that they have in their modeling. So scary times. Uh, and we'll get Banish to speak to a little bit uh, about his experience, of course. Okay. Oh, Adam, you want to say something? Well, I, I think we should address the question, because this is a good time, of about uh, do we recommend DNR, DNI? And we can talk about the uh, outcomes of uh, CPR we've already addressed. But I, I'm going to put this to the panel. But my own biases, I think what this pandemic is showing is a, um, a discordance in what we think CPR can do for people and what it actually can do. And from an emerging critical care lens, there's a lot of patients that aren't appropriate for CPR because why they are resting, we can't fix with CPR. So for a coronary occlusion that gives you VT or VF, if we do CPR and fix the underlying problem, it works. 
doesn't work for everyone, but it works in a good percentage. If you arrest, like we talked about in the second webinar, from refractory hypoxemic respiratory failure, doing CPR on you will not fix why you arrested in the first case. So it's not a medically indicated intervention. And maybe I'll just pass that because I think that's a huge component of all of our jobs every day of communicating that both to colleagues, other healthcare professionals and patients' families. So Danish, Mario, Omar, what do you guys think about that? I think I've uh, used that line of logic a lot with the patients that we have in the unit, uh, or not with the patients' families that we have in the unit that are intubated and, uh, and becoming increasingly hypoxic and just kind of uh, having a discussion with the family. And I think it's well understood by families for the most part that CPR would mostly be a harmful intervention as opposed to providing any kind of relief or any kind of meaningful recovery. Uh, and, and I agree with you completely. I don't think that there is any benefit when we're, when we're dealing with these patients who just have absolutely refractory hypoxemia. And it's just a massive uh, exposure risk to your staff. And it's, and it's and obviously a resuscitation is often a very labor-intensive process where it's just uh, the exposure risk is too high for the benefit that doesn't exist. I think we, we chatted a lot. Sorry, Mario, do you have a, please go ahead. No, I, I tend to agree in general terms with what uh, you said, Adam. Uh, the one thing that I kind of caution is that I think the, uh, the, the COVID experiment in the sense that we've seen and been able to test out some of these things that we'd never be able to run an experiment on, like how, how effective is CPR, all these other things. I think the one thing that I kind of caution when I think about refractory hypoxemia in general is um, I, think, I think you definitely acknowledge this. You probably just didn't say it, is that uh, hypoxemia from a reversible etiology like pulmonary embolism or something else like that. Sure. Um, and I think that in terms of, uh, I think what, what, it, what it really brings out to me is that um, frailty is a very important consideration when proceeding down the route of um, ex extreme measures or heroic measures. Uh, and I think the COVID kind of crisis really brings that front and center is that you don't die because of COVID per se. I think you die because you are a very unwell person whose organ systems have just been pushed to the extent where they don't have the ability to recover. And that's kind of what COVID shows us. But in general, I do agree with you. Uh, thank you, Mario. Um, and I think, you know, all of this stuff, will, will, this will be the theme for today, is just how we think and approach medicine in general and EM and critical care in general is going to change, uh, and I, I think change for the better. I know we heard from, from Donish on previous talks about how palliative care is much more involved in these conversations, and it's not necessarily that we're going to try and force DNR or DNR on people, but I think we often don't approach the conversation uh, very well and thoughtfully, and it's often, you know, sort of a quick hallway chat so we can tick off their, their most form and sort of say, yeah, you're a, you're a DNR, DNI, or, you know, we use the most here in Canada, obviously, and so filling out the different forms is a quick tick box. So I think having a more informed discussion with the patients, and I think um, people knowing the alternatives to, to having everything, so to speak, and talking to palliative care about what they can actually offer and the peace and, and love and end-of-life uh, care that, that's quite, um, quite peaceful, I think, um, is really important for people to know because I think we do a very poor job of that at the best of times even now. 
And, and certainly I agree with both Adam and Mario. Uh, I think, it, you know, at, at the end of the day, it really depends on where we're at. And I think well, I do I do take a significant pause when we looked at the study that uh, we chatted about last time and Adam's mentioned with CPR in hospital. Uh, those co those uh, codes were, you know, had notoriously poor outcomes. And we've seen more from out-of-hospital cardiac arrest that show sort of also poor outcomes. So I think, again, we need to look at every single uh, every single case and, and, and judge it on its own merits. But I think what's changing is we are going to be much more cognizant and much more sensitive about those things. Uh, so move on to a question here. Uh, what do you predict in terms of incidence prevalence once phase reopening of businesses occurs? Are we expecting a second wave? Um, so that's one of the questions. So that's a great question. And it's uh, it's a question that, every, that everyone has on their minds. And I think we'll have a lot more information tomorrow when Dr. Bonnie Henry talks about um, how we're going to relax social distancing uh, to some extent, but it's not going to be an entire relaxing. As we saw on those curves, if we sort of relax from 30%, which we're at right now, up to 60%, um, we'll still have good control of the situation and we won't see a huge uptick in cases. How that's actually going to be rolled out will be, we'll get a lot more information from Dr. Henry tomorrow. But we have to be very, very cognizant that if we sort of release everyone, yes, we will definitely see a second wave. And it won't take much for us to be over uh, overwhelmed. So uh, a second phase may come, but uh, with uh, with great attention to detail, like our epidemiologists and our uh, BC CDC are doing, we should have good control. The good news is that we're in a much different situation than we were uh, two months ago when all of this started, where we, we were, the access to testing was very limited. And... Uh, we couldn't do quick testing. There was, you know, significant turnaround times for those tests, especially in rural sites. But since that time, we actually have testing much more broadly available across the province. A lot of the rural sites have it now. We now have a, a test, at least in Island Health, that that, that can have that has a turnaround time of 30 to 40 minutes. Uh, that was rolled out a few a uh, few weeks ago to certain sites that were more rural and remote. So all of these testings are really going to help. We have. Uh, increased our ability to uh, to trace contacts as well, and of course we have built incredible capacity in our hospitals over the last number of months. So hopefully a second wave, if we see that, we'll pick it up pretty quickly and be able to shut back down and go back to increasing our social distancing, um, and we won't have a, a major wave. Um, all right, any other questions there, Donald, at this point? Or? Okay, good. All right, so we're going to move on. Um, so let's uh, do this here. So just going to talk a little bit about, um, there are many victims of COVID, and unfortunately one of the victims was a very well-respected physician in New York City, uh, Dr. Lorna Breen, who we all heard about, who contracted COVID, became quite sick, uh, had to take time off work, which apparently was very hard for her because she's someone that liked to be in the front lines and uh, treating people, and uh, went back to work, was feeling quite unwell, and uh, ultimately, uh, unfortunately, committed suicide. And I'm going to turn it over to, to Donish to talk a little bit about Lorna Green, because she was part of, of your community, and if you could just chat a little bit about her, and uh, and just the toll it takes on, on all of you, uh, seeing the uh, the numbers you are seeing. Sure. So uh, Dr. Lauren Breen actually graduated from uh, the residency program that I graduated from as well. So she was uh, a dual certified emergency medicine internal medicine physician and worked at one of the Columbia affiliates. And uh, I know Columbia uh, in uptown Manhattan was, uh, was was very severely hit during this time. And uh, we all, it's a small community, the end doctors, as we all know, and in, especially in New York City, we're all one or two degrees of separation away from 
uh, from each other. So there's a lot of people at my shop who knew her personally and had very good things to say about her and thought she was always kind of a vibrant, vivacious, and positive character. So it's definitely a lost her community. And I think um, the speculation is that this is a lot of this was kind of driven by the trauma that she saw uh, with treating COVID patients and seeing a lot of young people die and pass away. Um, I think it definitely takes a toll in a number of ways. I think we spoke about it last time where uh, emotionally, obviously, seeing um, patients pass uh, much sooner than we would anticipate their time and um, dealing with on a daily basis and having these heavy conversations of end-of-life care uh, definitely takes a toll on you emotionally. And then when you start looking physically between um, wearing PPE every day, sweating, um, a lot of us are putting in more hours than we're used to to kind of cover the gaps. It, it all takes a toll, and we're trying to find the best way to combat it to promote physician wellness in New York City. Um, and mental health resources have certainly been pro provided to us and been afforded to us. Uh, we've tried to figure out the best ways to uh, be together while still socially distancing. So uh, whether that's Zoom, happy hours, or otherwise, uh, we've, we've certainly tried to make sure we're there for each other and have, been, have an outlet to talk about some of the trials and travails that we go through. And I think there's a lot of common shared um, trauma that we have uh, with, with all of us. We can all speak of the young patient who was 30 who passed away or, or, or the patient we had to speak with their family prior to uh, intubating them or, or having, you know, grandchildren say goodbye to grandma before you intubated grandmother and, and knowing kind of the mortality rates of intubating someone of that age. So it's, it's definitely been, uh, it's been rough. I know uh, you and I chatted um, a few weeks into this, uh, and we've heard about this from other palliative care talks on, on COVID and uh, just how hard these conversations are because, you know, it's different from a lot of our conversations where, you know, someone might have a form of cancer or interstitial pulmonary fibrosis or a disease that's sort of coming towards the end of life but has been developing over months or sometimes years. And uh, the conversations surrounding COVID were very, very difficult because you might have someone who's actually a pretty vibrant 60 or 70 year old or even an 80 year old and and had a full life and all of a sudden you know they're they're uh, they're uh, severely unwell and and there's conversations about intubation and end of life and they're you know they're going from a week ago being totally fine to now having these conversations with them or sometimes they're not even part of that conversation said because they're so unwell and telling the family that sorry there's nothing we can do and having that conversation I mean, we all have that as critical care physicians uh, unfortunately fairly frequently, but the, the frequency at which this was happening was, was almost daily, so very, very hard, I'm sure. I think, you know, you, you and I chatted quite a, quite a while about that one case you had. Yeah, yeah, it's, uh, it's, and it was nice to have our palliative care colleagues uh, come down to the emergency department and kind of reside there so that they could take a lot of the weight of this off our shoulders. So really appreciated their, uh, their help with that. All right, Adam, Mario, anything you want to add at this point? Um, I, you know, I think that um, one of the uh, things that this whole pandemic highlighted to me um, and uh, this kind of case of uh, your friend Danish passing away um, is that, uh, you know, as a person who does struggle with depression and anxiety, it's um, some of the things that uh, are uh, tough with the pandemic is uh, your usual methods of self-care are kind of taken away from you completely. Um, and I know for me, like going out and working out and socializing and um, are very important ways in which I keep my depression and my anxiety in check. And certainly during the pandemic, I've certainly 
had moments where I needed to reach out to friends and family to kind of help me cope with all of it. Um, and I think that's not necessarily a unique thing for being a critical care physician. I suspect at least, uh, you know, in BC, where we've been preparing for this significant surge of uh, badness to happen, uh, there's a lot of my colleagues in emergency departments across the country and ICU physicians, I'm sure, who uh, continually just have the COVID planning running in their heads, and that's exhausting on its own and can definitely lead to burnout. Um, the other parts that are kind of interesting is uh, I know early in the pandemic, I was very worried about even accessing my medications. Like, am I going to get my federal vaccine in time or am I going to be able to um, get my immunosuppressants? Um, and these were, you know, that was, that kind of adds to the whole picture as well. So I think, that, um, you know, I, I wanted to kind of make sure that we take this moment, at least in BC, um, to everyone who's listening out there, I know you guys are healthcare professionals and definitely leaders in your community. But if um, and it, it it's it's brutal not being able to um, access self care and the usual things that keep you healthy. So if um, any of you guys uh, need someone to talk to or whatever, you know, um, send me an email. I'm happy to chat. Thank you, Mario. That's, um it's nice of you to share, and nice of you to share yourself with with others. And uh, and certainly, there's a lot of uh, a lot of resources out there. So call call your friends. And again, we're happy to uh, to chat with you as well. But it is a is very very tough time for all. I work closely with our psychiatry colleagues, and we know that folks in the community as well are suffering. And there's a lot of uh, ECT was shut down. It was considered uh, an AGMP at least early on, and so a lot of patients weren't getting ECTs. There's a lot of people that. Uh, that are getting their uh, their therapies, um, and uh, and a lot of people just staying home, not able to to get out to the, the drugstores, as you mentioned. So yeah, society in general is uh, it's definitely been hard on everybody. There's a question about um, you know is it worth the uh, the cost of shutting down the entire community when people are suffering mentally as well? And I can't really comment on that, but it's definitely a question that uh, that weighs heavily on uh, on our leaders. Um, thanks for sharing, guys. Um, so we're just going to uh, get into uh, some things here, but just wanted to, uh, to sort of mention, you know, it's interesting, uh, this is our fourth webinar, and I kind of feel like we've come full circle from where we started from in that, um, you know, we used to provide good care in the, in the critical care environment in the emergency department. We would, you know, reach out to our patients, and, and we'd just say, you know, we would treat viral illnesses as viral illnesses. We would look for other things. And I found, you know, so many things have happened over the last number of weeks, and over the last number of months, actually, and so many published studies. and telling us to do this for a practice and do that for a practice, and it's been changing, intubate early, don't intubate early, I put them on high flow diesel cannula, don't put them back on, and I find at the end of the day it's just interesting because we've just come full circle to a few things that, that I think are important to mention is one, um, good ICU care works, and, uh, and that starts in the emergency department, so if you see somebody who's in Florida ARDS, you know, you don't think they're in Florida hypovolemic shock, well, again, you're going to hold off on fluids, you're going to ventilate people the way we always have and we just use common sense and that that's shown and I think we've proven that in in BC with our low mortality rates in the ICU of 14 percent versus five times that or four times that in other centers. Uh, anchor bias is really is, is quite real also and I feel that you know that's not just a day-to-day -day practice. I know 
um, when we see a patient, sometimes we look at an x-ray, we're like, well, that's a pneumonia. Well, it turns out maybe it's a, it's a tumor or maybe it's a congestive heart failure or maybe it's a, maybe it's a hemothorax, maybe it's a, you know, SLE hemorrhage, pulmonary hemorrhage. There's different things. We see that all the time. We kind of bias, uh, anchor bias on the things we know most. And this certainly showed that very, very much so. And uh, I put this EKG up top because I've received a case, uh, a call about a patient who had a who had significant chest pain on increasing troponin and, you know, sort of like, hey, can you take this guy in your ICU? I'm like, well, why? And they're like, well, we think he's got COVID. I'm like, why do he's got COVID? It sounds like he's got an ACS. And they're like, well, his EKG looks normal. I'm like, well, it sounds like it's, you know, it's ACS. He's got no risk factors. And, and that's what he had in the end. There's no COVID. But just, again, we kind of biased, we anchored so much on uh, anchored so much on COVID. And same thing with uh, the, the CT below is we had a patient who, who you know, who had belly pain for, for almost two weeks and was sort of labeled as a COVID patient. And, and in the end, he ended up having a perfect diverticulitis and had a massive abscess in his abdomen. And we were so, you know, so uh, anchored on, on COVID. So it's just a good reminder for medicine in general to, to always think, what is our differential? And we always teach our, our residents that, and that sometimes we forget it ourselves. Uh, novel therapies are often just that. They're just novel things that sort of come and go. They're often fads. We're seeing that now. We're talking a lot about medications as we go forward, but we've seen various medications tried uh, and lots of medications coming out of the woodworks that we haven't used in decades uh, trying to rear their ugly heads again. And in the end of the day, we find that actually nothing really worked other than good care. And then finally, just good individualized patient care. We tried to fit everyone into into little boxes and say, you know, and we'll talk a little bit about the L-type and the H-type of ARDS and whether or not that's actually real. But at the end of the day, it's really every patient is a bit different. And so when we say we made it really important to be really um, judicious with fluid use and keep patients dry. And I think I do believe in that very much so, but sometimes we just keep them too dry. And we've seen cases of people going to Florida uh, kidney injury because they're just too dry. And questions that have always come up is, hey, somebody's uh, got a history of cardiomyopathy, but they've been vomiting for four days. Omar, I don't want to give them fluid. Well, they're still dry. They still need fluid. So, you know, each patient needs to be individualized. You can't sort of hold off because they've got a cardiomyopathy or they've got a history of pulmonary edema you got to individualize your care to that particular patient in front of you. So just wanted to mention that. It's just been good lessons uh, that we've learned along the way and good reminders, really, that at the end of the day, good care uh, matters and, and looking at the patient in front of you. I'm going to talk a little. There's a lot of questions about novel presentations, so a good segue. This will answer a lot of people's questions. So maybe we'll start off with uh, uh, with some presentations that are dermatological in nature. Um, I'm not sure. Adam, do you want to chat a little bit about, uh, about this to start? And uh, we can sort of go for the panelists. Sure, you pick on the guy who hasn't been doing peds emerge for the last two years. Thanks. No, I think the the point is, as seen with other viral illnesses, hand, foot, mouth, um, HSP. Uh, the question is, is this a thrombotic complication or a small to medium vessel vasculitis? And the the jury's still out. We don't know, but we are describing more and more dermatologic manifestations, and. Uh, autoimmune manifestations like Kawasaki's. And it's not just New York, it's not just Italy, this is coming out of centers worldwide. So you gotta do the full exam and realize that in primary care and emergency care settings that you have multiple presentations, not just the hypoxemic patients. Um, I will hold judgment to say what this truly is coming from because I think it's really important that we're realizing we're wrong a lot and we'll just say these are associated with COVID patients. As Omar said before, and Danish keeps telling us, COVID plus syndromes are common. So is this Kawasaki's from a different viral ideology like we would have saw before, 
or is it likely to lead that thing truly an increased incidence of Kawasaki's uh, likely due to uh, likely due to COVID? I don't know, Danish Mario. Want to say anything more about that? Um, no, I, I I don't because the last time I diagnosed Kawasaki was a while ago. Yeah, I don't have much to say about Kawasaki's, but I but I can say kind of noticing the uh, the, the dermatologic manifestations of uh, of COVID more more frequently now. I actually had one of our PAs sitting next to me on shift. She started to break out with a macular papillar rash. And just spread slowly over her body, and then you know, lo and behold, three days later, she tested positive for COVID. So, definitely, definitely a real thing. Yeah. So the uh, the slide below just goes to the diagnostic criteria for Kawasaki's, and the reason I brought it in was there's a recent case report of a six month old who presented with uh, with fever, ended up being COVID positive, but had all the uh, classic uh, characteristics of of Kawasaki's as well, and so they reported it as a uh, you know a possible. Um, relation to uh, to Kawasaki's disease. We know that, you know, Kawasaki's we've known about for, for decades, but we've never really fully understood the etiology behind it. And um, we know that it sort of induces a uh, vasculitis that's fairly severe and can lead to significant uh, coronary artery disease as well as aortic aneurysms. Um, and, um, you know, the feeling is that maybe there is a relationship with with, Kawas with uh, Kawasaki's and, uh, and COVID. Uh, there was a discussion about this on EMRAP recently, and uh, the Italians, though I haven't seen this in paper anywhere, but the Italians are saying they've seen a five-fold increase in Kawasaki-like uh, presentations uh, in their pediatric population, and not in keeping with, uh, with when they would normally see it in terms of uh, the season. And so maybe there's a signal there. Again, as, uh, as the panelists have said, we caution um, to make too many associations because, as, uh, as we've said, there's so many people, we have 400, 4 million people almost that have been infected with COVID. So among those people, you know, unfortunately, some of them are going to have Kawasaki's and some of them are going to have rashes. And so is it just that we're picking up regular diseases that we'd see in them anyways. And now because everything can be published because it's related to COVID, uh, we're just reading more and more about it. I've got to say in my ICU, we have, uh, well, patients that we did have, we had two that actually had Stephen Johnson's like uh, reaction. So just, just very, very interesting. And I don't know if that's something um, unique to the, 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 the type of virus we've got here, but uh, haven't heard of that, of that from other patients on the island, but uh, two that had uh, had that. So it's kind of interesting, it's just coincidental maybe, um, or maybe you have some weird stock of drug, but um, it wasn't really, we couldn't really find a strong correlation to the same drug or um, anything else. So anyways, just interesting things. All right, so we'll move along here into um, some more um, some other novel presentations. So, Mario or Donish, do you want to, or Adam, do you want to take on the uh, the neuro uh, aspects? Go ahead. Um, more and more anecdotes and small case series coming out. So, uh, French published an experience in sorry, the an experience in cohort in France of uh, neuro sequelae, not just metabolic encephalopathy like we see when you're on the dazolam infusion for two weeks when you run out of propofol but uh, also extra axial complications like Guillain-Barre syndrome and other causes. Um, there have been more and more anecdotal cases of meningeal encephalitis, uh, of which uh, a six-year-old in, in Detroit unfortunately passed away from. So CNS involvement seems to be a thing. No one has really definitively cultured the virus in CSF, but we're seeing complications both in the brain and outside of it. 
Uh, and remember, when you have torrential ARDS and you're exposed to big doses of steroids and paralytics, you're also going to be very weak from critical illness acquired neuro or neuromyopathies. Um, so that's a thing as well. And then the thrombotic complications, I think I'll leave to my, my co-panelists because there's a lot of discussion around macro and micro. All right, well, we know that um, it's interesting. At first, you know, I thought it was all hype that, uh, you know, this DVTPE thing was just, uh, we're just reporting anything that we can report on in regards to COVID. But as more and more data comes out, it seems very clear and anecdotally amongst all of us, we've seen that uh, the DVT, VTE uh, rates are actually quite high. We think at the best of times, uh, based on the PROTECT study, um, which is looking at uh, DVTs and, and uh, prophylaxis, they found that uh, between 5 to 6% of critically ill patients uh, who are on heparin or uh, Fragmin had, uh, had DVTs. So that's kind of our baseline. And that was a significantly large study with thousands of patients, sort of multi-center. Whereas what we're hearing reported time and time again, and Donish, maybe you can speak to this, because you've seen a significant amount of these patients, that uh, VTE rates are about 40 to 50%, depending on, uh, on what you read. And so that, to me, it actually sounds fairly, fairly significant. And then our discussions with the intensivists across the province, we're certainly hearing that it's a big, it's a big issue. So I think it is, a, it is a real thing. As to why that's happening, it's not really sure. Is there a hypercoagulable state relating to consumption? We don't know. Um, there's sort of discussion about maybe being it related to the hyper um, the hyperinflammatory state and the sort of cytokine release. Maybe uh, is it directly related to the virus? We don't really know. But what's your experience, Donish? And um... yeah, I think we found a number of. I think it's. I think that uh, that uh, instance rate is probably true. Uh, seen a lot of patients with DVTs or clots. We've seen a number of arterial thrombi as well. Uh, most of the services are uh, most of the surgical services are way down on their volume, and the one that continues to be busy is the uh, vascular service, uh, mostly to kind of uh, for intervene on some of these arterial clots or some of these larger um, uh, venous uh, or, or um, occluding venous uh, clots. So it's it's been true throughout. We've been uh, again, there's there's little evidence in terms of what we're doing with anticoagulation to so standard of care now, but. Just about everywhere, we just started uh, anticoagulating people with rising uh, D-dimers. So we bought into the hype, if you will. <laughs> it's been frustrating, though, at least uh, experience here in BC. Um, you have D-dimers rising despite being on therapeutic doses, mm -hmm. and you check the 10A, maybe it's a little low. Right. And anecdotally, these patients do not tolerate venostasis. Like, you put a catheter in a vessel, and even it's got some room around, they clot. Um, interesting paper in New England uh, today around 30 patients with COVID and uh, they all were anti-phospholipid-like because they had lupus um, anticoagulant on board. So interesting, we don't know. They look yeah. to be clotty-clotty uh, and whether it's endothelial, uh, the general cascade being activated or platelet dysfunction or all of it or none of it, we don't know. The, the, uh, the only thing that I kind of think about when I am, um, uh, you know, I, I agree that there's a lot of coming out around thrombosis around um, COVID, uh, but uh, if I if we kind of take a step back and look at critical care's approach to uh, venous thromboembolism in the last uh, 20-30 years, we've been moving towards increasingly increasing doses or more aggressive anticoagulation in a lot of our critical. Um, 
uh, I'm kind of, I get super excited about therapies, but I'm a super late adopter of all these therapies. Um, so I kind of want to, I'm still not completely sold on it. Um, and I would probably, you know, say that, you know, if, of all the different uh, weird things we've associated with COVID, um, uh, I think probably thrombosis is the most logical one that will eventually pan out. But in terms of, am I surprised that super critically ill folks have thrombosis? No, not really. Uh, but, uh, you know, I, I'm, I'm patient, impatiently waiting for a comparison between COVID patients and all comers based on their degree of inflammatory response. But uh, I don't know. In terms of where we go from here, I know that uh, Canada thrombosis has, uh, at this point, just continued to uh, to treat um, as you normally would. Um, the BC CDC Therapeutics Committee, that's led by uh, Dr. David Sweet um, and very uh, many smart people, including pharmacists and uh, intensive care docs across the province, have rec recommended increased dosing uh, from the normal uh, standard dosing would be 40 of anox enoxaparin once a day to 30 uh, BID. And I know some places, uh, I believe it's Alberta, is using tinsaparin once a day. There's no uh, no good evidence behind that, but uh, people are taking this uh, this risk for real. But uh, hard to know. The evidence, again, is, is lacking. And as Adam says, is uh, evidence right in this particular scenario. Um, there's a question here about uh, what are the possible long-term negative health effects directly due to, uh, to the coronavirus? And um, I mean, I think at this point, it's really too early to say we're still learning this disease. There hasn't been a lot of long-term effects reported out of, uh, out of the other centers yet, but I think that'll only become clear over the coming months and then potentially even over the coming years. We do know that people who have uh, significant and severe pneumonia can be left with significant uh, scar tissue. They can also be left with, uh, you know, um, pulmonary hypertension and, and, you know, a lot of our patients that get uh, significant uh, PEs or massive PEs, submassive PEs, they're often left as pulmonary cripples. And so those effects that we see in, in any of our critically ill patients, I'm sure will be there. Will there be extra long-term effects related to COVID? We won't really know. Uh, Don, if you had a case that uh, you wanted to chat about. Sure. I mean, I, I think it's similar to what you're saying. It just kind of underscores the point um, that is this, is this more is going to be more common amongst COVID patients or not, but it was actually a, a friend of mine who's also intensivist. Uh, her father actually contracted uh, COVID and ended up coming in and out of the ICU for some time. But his, his this is kind of a healthy, no past medical history, uh, fairly skinny, but a healthy 66-year-old who never smoked a day in his life, but just at the CT scan post just looked like he had emphysema in his lungs with massive bulla and scarring throughout. And uh, speaking to this whole kind of idea of not having any evidence, it just leaves us so uneasy. So she was kind of battling herself saying, you know, I kept my father out of the hospital for as long as possible, but what if I had brought him in earlier and got him oxygen therapy, or what if I had started some of these uh, these little known or these uh, poorly evidence-based medications, would that have made a difference? Because now it's the question of, will he get off his three liters of uh, nasal cannula that he's been discharged home on? I don't know. But it's a whole lot of anxiety and guilt, I think, just because we know so little about this disease or treatment modalities. Yeah, the, the, yeah, we're going to learn as we go forward, but the human cost uh, is, is huge for sure from, from all of this. And it's not over yet, is it, unfortunately? Um, we're going to move on to, uh, to medications. Um, 
And so, um, you know, again, just sort of going back to what we talked about earlier, there's all sorts of things that have been trialed um, and things that have come out of the woodworks, including, you know, some very old drugs that, uh, that fell out of favor relating to side effects or better drugs that came out that were better tolerated or more efficacious. And drugs like chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, other than used as uh, within rheumatoid arthritis or lupus patients, autoimmune conditions, really not use significant toxicity profile. Um, uh, we'll get to that as well. Kalitra was a, one of the early drugs used, uh, used for HIV, again, not tolerated well and, uh, you know, certainly not a drug that we use at all. I don't think we can even uh, have access to it in Canada. Uh, remdesivir we'll talk a little bit about as well, but we've used, you know, azithromycin with combinations of uh, chloroquine, hydroxychloroquine, uh, all sorts of things that sort of come out of the woodwork. Colchicine, invermectin, like drugs that you would never think about. Uh, mitosis inhibiting drugs like fulchicine and then invermectin, like an old anti-helminth drug. It's just it's just bizarre how these things come out. Uh, I just read about chlorpromazine as well today, and a lot of these drugs are actually being repurposed. So a lot of labs are looking at them and just dumping like hundreds of drugs into a petri dish and seeing what happens to the virus. They're like, hey, interesting, fomodrine worked or chlorpromazine worked, and um, and then they kind of try it in humans and realize, hey, it actually doesn't work with their side effects. Uh, so very very interesting. Um, this is kind of a funny slide that was uh, shared with me by a, a toxicology uh, colleague, Dr. Ovakim, and, uh, you know, I thought it was kind of funny. We're getting flooded with calls. Trump must be dispensing medical advice again, so these are the toxicologists talking to themselves. So, it's, you know, it's kind of funny at first, but unfortunately, we realize that as, as Trump does talk, you do see that what he says, and we've all heard this, what he does say has an impact on people. And here you see this is the... Um, now, the American Poison Control uh, Center database information, and if you look at uh, the cases of hydroxychloroquine, um, they went up, uh, toxicity went up pretty significantly uh, in 2019 to 2020, um, almost by double when Trump started touting how great hydroxychloroquine was. And if you um, if you look at uh, look at the graph, it wasn't they weren't minor um, effects. A lot of patients actually have fairly significant effects, including. Uh, two uh, husband and wife couple that ended up in ICU, and he actually died. And uh, I don't know if she survived, but uh, she obviously was quite ill as well if she did survive this. And you sort of see that, uh, you know, major effects uh, were about 3%, and then moderate effects about 15%. And then this uh, gray area uh, at the top of the graph shows people that were unable to be followed, but the judgment, the, they were judged to have significant uh, toxicity. So it's just interesting. Trump's, uh, Trump's words do, uh, do make a difference. And then here's uh, looking at, um, again, the National Poison Data System uh, data, looking at bleach and the number of bleach exposures. Um, again, you sort of see that almost doubled uh, in March and April of this year compared to, uh, to previous years. So just interesting uh, and scary, scary stuff. Um, so, Adam, can you chat a little bit about, I think, uh, remdesivir in particular, if you don't mind. There's recent uh, data that just came out. Yeah, I guess the caveat is we keep saying this every webinar we have another one dies the or bites the dust. Um, I think if you back up and say just like I I think you were trying to pronounce petri dish Omar I don't, I don't know um, <laughs> but I guess if you're saying that you're trying to target viral replication early in the disease knock it off early and then not have the sequelae from that the problem is most patients are asymptomatic or they present late into the disease course when their viral loads either peaked or coming back down again. So all these drugs we're using, the time course we can't pick 
uh, like we can pick an animal study where you inoculate an animal and use it right away. So that is probably a, a major player in the real world efficaciousness of drugs. So that being said, we've had multiple small cohorts coming up where Gilead keeps pushing the goalpost forward and getting more and more recruitment to try to find a benefit. We've had a paper with the Wuhan experience that remdesivir does not have any clinical meaning outcomes and you might drop uh, symptom illness or uh, days symptomatic by a day or so. We see that with Tamiflu all the time. It doesn't affect mortality, doesn't affect days on the ventilator, just drops symptoms by 16 hours maybe. So remember, antivirals will not be the silver bullet here, even though we keep pushing for them. Okay. We're waiting. Uh, the other part of this is, and I will say Dr. Fauci is the man, and uh, he, he's got an amazing track record, so it's hard to say why he said this. But the same day that the Lancet published their negative trial on remdesivir, Dr. Fauci uh, was quoted saying that remdesivir is now the standard of practice based on the NIH trial that has not published these findings, but an interim data safety report uh, dropped days of illness from 11 to 15 days of remdesivir versus standard care. And there was a non-significant change in mortality of 8 versus 11%. So that's all to say is if you look at this, drug will not be the silver bullet and it will not save all the lives we think it will. That's my humble opinion. I could be wrong, and we'll see when it rolls out again. But I guess I, I'm frustrated because we did the same thing in 1918 with chloroquine and hydroxychloroquine published in JAMA saying we should elucidate whether these drugs are effective with viral pneumonias, and we did the same with SARS and MERS and Ebola. We keep rolling through the same thing, uh, repeating history. And, I, and Adam, it might be worthwhile mentioning uh, that interesting stat uh, about Surrey Memorial Hospital in the ICU. Um, uh, go ahead. So I think what Mario is getting at is uh, Surrey Memorial and BC in general has one of the lowest reported mortalities of mechanically ventilated patients. And Surrey in particular does nothing but standard of care meaning they don't expose their patients to potential risks uh, outside of RCTs of drugs that are unproven. So not a lot of steroids, not a lot of tocilizumab, not Kaletra, remdesivir, hydroxychloroquine outside of RCTs, and they have great outcomes. The caveat being everywhere here in BC is not like Danish is dealing with in New York. We have tons of nurses, RTs. We've got lots of resources to bear. Um, so that's a very important capacity issue as well. Yeah, and, and I think the capacity thing is so huge because uh, I'm, I currently, because uh, of the low volumes at me, Mount Sinai, I've been moved out to uh, one of the affiliate sites uh, in Brooklyn and just hearing their stories during uh, during the uh, the peak was just incredible. There was patients just intubated on the floors for days waiting for ICU beds, and you can imagine floor nurses taking care of these patients with no monitors. Uh, a lot of these people didn't get sedation because there's no one looking after them was critically care trained and would self-extubate and the rest, you can imagine mortality rates uh, skyrocketed with that kind of a crush of patients and lack of resources. Um, and I think uh, I mean, so much fear and anxiety and desperate times calls for desperate measures, I think. And so, you know, and I think our politicians are desperate to give something. And I'm sure Dr. Fauci, even though he's the man, I mean, he's probably got lots of pressure and uh, we've, we've heard 
Uh, of course, Trump uh, spells different things along the way, and I think it just it, it speaks to his. Uh, I don't want to make this all political, but it certainly speaks to his, um, you know, his base and shows that he's maybe doing something. I think, and I'm not going to get too crazy political about Tamiflu either. But I know, you know, in the early days of Tamiflu, a lot of governments used that to show how how well they were prepared for influenza by stockpiling, you know, millions of dollars worth of Tamiflu. And you know, I'm not going to get into the efficacy of that, but there's a lot of money spent. Um, uh, and if you believe there's benefits, um, you know, there's a lot of money spent for very minimal benefit if you believe there's benefit at all. So I think it's, it's history repeats itself, and uh, unfortunately, uh, we're seeing that here uh, very much. So there's a question about uh, does coronavirus uh, antibody-rich plasma infusion help patients in most of the cases? So that's a really interesting question, and I think we can take a step back and talk a little bit uh, about that and talk a little bit about vaccines as well. You know, it's certainly being studied. Um, but to, to talk a little bit about vaccines, because it ties in nicely, and feel free, any of the other panelists, to, to, to pipe in. Um, but, uh, you know, we're finding that there's m multiple different uh, companies and scientists looking at developing a vaccine, and it's just not coming as quickly as we would like. And we're finding that, uh, for whatever reason, the coronavirus doesn't seem to create, uh, the antibodies don't seem to create a, a strong immune response via the vaccine. And uh, we're looking at, uh, you know, I think there's a study we all know about in New York where they looked at randomly uh, people that were in a grocery store, and I think they tested 3,000 people, or, and 20% uh, of them had uh, had been exposed to the virus. But I don't think they had actual, or they're positive, um, but they didn't seem to have immunity, as far as we could tell, based on serology. And so the question then is: Is there something special about about coronavirus that uh, that evades our ability to to develop immunity, and uh, and further um, makes it difficult to to to, uh, to develop a vaccine? And so taking that further step further, if we haven't developed immunity, uh, then maybe this IgM, IgG is not as effective as we think by giving convalescent plasma. Now, that's sort of my understanding of it. I'm, I'm happy to be corrected. Uh, and we will learn more as we go forward, and hopefully a vaccine will come. But my understanding is it just hasn't been, uh, hasn't at this point, is not recommended therapy. Uh, Adam or Danish or Mario, do you guys have other thoughts on that? Uh, yeah, for the, for the convalescent plasma, I guess there's not really, again, there's not evidence for it or, or a large study that would uh, validate it, but it's all anecdotal in my personal um, experience. It has not been helpful at all, and it's had patients receive multiple rounds of uh, plasma and uh, just continue to deteriorate. So I haven't seen anyone magically come off the vent after, uh, after uh, getting the uh, antibodies either. So from a personal experience, I've not seen any benefit, but again, that's my my very limited experience, right? Yeah, and I think I'm not a virologist, I'm not a vaccine expert, and but I think what you said, Omar, is important that we're early and we have no idea what a specific titer means for long-term immunity. So uh, what IgG and IgM equate to, we won't know until it's better studied. The other caveat is there is a lot of uh, point of care IgG and IgM tests on the market. And I, I just want to underscore that they have not been validated and there's a shitload of false positives. So you got to be very careful with those tests too. So outside of your med micro experts who are truly the experts here and are public health experts, I would not listen to Joe Blow in public health, or sorry, in uh, Facebook and rather listen to your public health experts. All right, great. Thanks, guys. So uh, moving along here, we're going to just move into uh, a little bit into oxygenation ventilation. Although that's a question that comes uh, to us offline quite a bit, so we thought we'd just 
dive into that a little bit uh, here. Um, so first of all, I just wanted people to ask a lot of questions about the six-liter nasal prongs, and, uh, and and they sort of were hearing more and more that people are worried that once you go on six liters, is it aerosol generating? And the reason it's been capped at six liters is the main reason is once you get beyond six liters, the benefit is actually not no longer there as you're uh, you're going to start entraining a lot of room air. And so once you get to six liters, that's kind of the maximum. If you want to get more bang for your buck, that's when you sort of start to add a non-rebreather uh, mask where you're no longer entraining room air. So six liters is kind of the maximum. If you want to crank it up beyond that, you certainly can, but it's probably not going to be very beneficial. We also know it's quite um, uncomfortable for the patients and, and does lead to... Uh, to epistaxis and, uh, and significant dryness, so we don't suggest that. We've talked a lot about high-flow nasal cannula and the uh, BC Provincial Working Group, the Critical Care Working Group, as you know, has, uh, has suggested that uh, we can use this in, uh, in our COVID patients. It's probably not an AGMP, but to be conservative, the, the group, though there was discussion back and forth, felt that to be conservative, we'd call it an AGMP, so it can be used in a private room or a negative pressure room uh, with people in uh, PPE, but you can use it. It's a very effective means of, of uh, oxygenating the patients. Um, and uh, sorry, Adam, do you want to chat a little bit about uh, the uh, few of these other things here, and or Mario or Donna? Sure. I, I think the entrainment's huge. Um, I think backing up just to remind people of why we intubate patients, uh, Tobin, the legend that wrote one of our mechanical ventilation and respiratory support textbooks in critical care, uh, he wrote a very lovely editorial piece just two weeks ago. God, it feels like nine years ago in COVID time. Reminding that most of the time when we put an endotracheal tube and blow up a balloon, it's so that we can actually get an inspired fraction of oxygen of one or 100%. Uh, and that we have to balance the, the importance of doing that to overcome lung shunt or right to left shunt. Uh, for oxygenation. So at six liters, yes, when you're pulling in 80 to 100 liters, you're just going to suck in room air and you're going to dilute out your benefit of an increased inspired fraction of oxygen. So that's one big thing. You have to match the patient's air hunger uh, to the flow that you are providing. Uh, and high flow really helps us do that. I think Danish in New York has reminded us that high flow is a pig when it comes to oxygen requirements. So if your hospital does not have a lot of oxygen, high flow rips through that um, at a crazy amount. Rotisserie and prone positioning. Again, uh, I think Danish's ortho teams are the best for this. But there's a lot of experience with awake proning, so tell us what you guys are seeing there, Danish. Yeah, so uh, awake proning, often in the ER, we'll just flip them on their bellies, uh, either on nasal cannula or, or even a, a non-rebreather, and the stats just shoot right up, just better matching, essentially. Um, it's great. and Look, we're, I guess, six or seven weeks into I'm not even sure how far along we are into this, but uh, our proning team just come into the ICU, and they're just so damn efficient at uh, proning patients. It's literally they'll flip a patient within six minutes. And it's done efficiently, delicately, carefully, but they've just done it so frequently that it's just not even an issue. I think this morning we had about eight patients um, proned in the unit, and the proning team came in. It was actually the ortho text this morning, but they done it so quickly. They just were in and out of the ICU after like 30 minutes and managed to flip eight patients in their wake and there's massive benefit. Um, it's often, I find it more of a, a, a way to buy the patients more time and help oxygenate them, but it's not a treatment, and I don't think we uh, can, can forget that either. I think one of the things that I'm starting to realize uh, about the awake proning thing is not only in its potential for deferring intubation, I had a, you know, another anecdote 
but I think an interesting one. Um, two, uh, I, I, I was fortunate to have two patients with, who came back COVID positive with COVID pneumonia who presented with the exact same demographic, exact same past medical history from the exact same breakout, uh, from the exact same cluster. And uh, young, one was managed by an intensivist who would prone them awake uh, to prevent intubation, optic blow up to 60%. Uh, and the patient remained in ICU for over three weeks and eventually got transported, trans transferred out. His, his cohort patient was intubated for a similar air hunger, exactly the same kind of uh, picture. That person went on to suffer some iatrogenic issues, uh, pneumothorax, um, and then a ventilator associated pneumonia, and also, you know, um, was in the ICU, but for a little for a little bit longer. They both did fine, both um, activated and left. But um, I think it, it for me, it just highlighted the kind of tried and tested critical care mantra that we see in the first chapter of every critical care textbook you opened is that the less you do to these uh, critically ill patients uh, with respect to ventilation, et cetera, potentially the better. better. Um, I'm interested to see how the awake cloning data pans out. And, and it is rolling out, like even we have Canadian examples from Western, we have anecdotes everywhere. Uh, New York just published um, some outcomes from both awake. And just to clarify for people listening, awake proning refers to patients who are not on invasive mechanical ventilation and prone positioning applies to being prone while you're on that. Uh, and I think uh, the satisfying thing Donna said is it, it is an art and uh, a thing of beauty to watch a team flip someone who's got CRT cannulas, chest tubes, mm -hmm. feeding tubes, and tracheal tubes uh, in an artful way and still get them comfortable and well positioned. So. Um, those are the two things, uh, and uh, I think moving on, because we're at 8.08, maybe we should move on to mechanical ventilation and the LH in Austin experience, unless anyone has anything else to say. Yeah, no, I think that's great. I was going to say it is nice to have the ortho teams uh, come up and actually practice medicine. It's a nice change. And, uh, <laughs> oh, so, oh, savage. You yeah, savage. Okay. Um, and I might just uh, skip to this next slide, then we'll come back to um, come back to the L and um, LNH type here in that discussion, that controversy there. But I just want to, a lot of people offline have been asking about how does proning work. So I don't want to go into it in too much detail, but if you look on the, uh, the two images on the left, they're of a patient who's supine, so you can see their, uh, their rotatable uh, bodies there, and on the right, uh, they're, uh, they're prone. And so the idea in most ARDS, if we're extrapolating from the ARDS literature, is that most of the, uh, the disease is in the posterior lungs. And, um, and you can see that here with the, uh, with the cubes, the um, it's all kind of uh, the alve those represent the alveoli and the, uh, the squiggly lines here represent the, the alveoli that are collapsed. And so what happens when you're lying supine, of course, blood uh, tends to go where gravity is. You have a significant VQ mismatch because the predominance of the blood is sort of the posterior aspects of the lungs. And so you get that VQ mismatch. And uh, so by, uh, by flipping them onto their bellies, so you'll see that on the pictures on the right, you actually redistribute the lungs reducing the boots of the blood to the areas the more healthy uh, alveoli so you're getting better oxygenation and you're getting better uh, better matching of uh, blood flow the other thing it does too is it uh, actually removes the uh, the intrathoracic pressure that's uh, applied to the uh, to the posterior damaged lungs and so by doing that uh, you actually get some recruitment of those alveolar segments so it's a it's a it's a uh, it's a double uh, double whammy win here, and we certainly see that clinically. There are other hemodynamic effects that also help, 
uh, offloading the RV as well, and, and some other things that are involved. But th those are basically the two, the gist of it there. And if you look here, uh, same idea. There's, uh, the, the images on the top are of uh, two, two different patients who are uh, supine, and the ones right below them are when they're prone. And uh, I don't know if that projects well, but you can sort of see on CT that the alveoli in the posterior aspects actually are opening up a bit. You're getting some recruitment. And so that's the idea is you're getting the recruitment and you're getting better VQ mismatching by, uh, by letting blood uh, via gravity go to the, uh, the less, uh, less damaged areas. And uh, Adam, maybe we'll have you chat a little bit about uh, the mechanical ventilation now uh, and the L&H type. And so I think the best quote, and Bob, I'm sorry, is don't do crazy shit. And the, that is the best example of what's going on right now with COVID is that throwing out years and decades worth of uh, evidence-based ARDS management for lung protective ventilation is a very tricky thing to do without really good evidence to counter that. Um, so LNH phenotypes, part of me thinks it's a great explanation. We covered it in the last two uh, webinars. This is Dr. Gattinoni and his Italian um, panel of very, very intelligent physicians who are seeing a lot of patients. And they're, what I think they're trying to do is communicate different types of people on this spectrum of hypoxemic respiratory failure who have different mechanics of that reason for hypoxemia. Now, the argument is that the L-type, what we said, was high compliance, low elastance, and the H-type is low compliance, high elastance, meaning one has air-filled lungs that are really hard to empty, and the other one is socked-in, heavy, angry, inflamed lungs that are really hard to inflate. Boston's experience uh, published with mechanically ventilated patient matches what we've seen for the last several decades uh, and going back to the original Alera trials, so those ARDSnet trials, that there's actually heterogeneity in the compliance of patients with so-called ARDS. And the definition in itself, what I'll, I'll do a shameful plug to my dear friend Josh Farkas, who did a great post on this in Deep Dive, into seven definitions of ARDS. And there's lots of different definitions. And we all agree that the best definition is probably the Perceva trial, where we got some evidence of who should be prone, is that if you've optimized mechanical ventilation and then measured compliance and PF ratios, though that's truly probably the ARDS patients we're talking about and the true H types. Um, so the punchline is Boston showing that we shouldn't totally ignore all our experience with ARDS, um, both pathophysiology and treatment, and I would agree that going back to 1990s bell-bottom style of 12 cc's per kilo tidal volume and zero peat is a really bad idea. And uh, anybody listening to this podcast, hopefully um, you're not running a vent and don't know that. Um, quickly, just to circle back to the uh, proning part, I, one of the things that I think is important kind of noticing is that for a lot of people who aren't in critical care, the, the process of flipping a patient might seem like what, why, are the, why the heck are these guys excited about that? Why, why do we need a team to do that? Um, and one of, the, one of the things to kind of realize is that when somebody's sick enough on a mechanical, uh, on ventilation to require proning, a lot of these patients, when they are proned, get super hypoxic or super hemodynamically unstable. Not to mention the complications of central lines falling out, uh, inadvertent extubations on someone on 100% uh, FiO2 statting 
and on tons of pressors. Uh, so the act of proning can actually kill somebody. Um, and so the idea that we can uh, prone non-mechanically ventilated patients while they're spontaneously breathing and not in that level of stress to help give them some chance of not of survival and doing well is quite exciting and critical. Just tell them to roll around a bed. I love it. The nurses just say, hey, move, move, move. It works. It all comes back to the rotisserie method. Um, yeah. All right, well, uh, why don't we uh, jump into some, um, some questions here, guys. So I think uh, one of the first ones was, um, there was one about palliative care here. Yeah, what about PPE to allow family to be at the bedside of dying patients with COVID-19? And I think... Um, we can all chat about our experiences, but I think they're all very, uh, very divergent. Um, we all have different uh, policies for visitation and whatnot. I know we heard last uh, last time we spoke about uh, Janice and Jim and, and how Jim was the patient with COVID and intubated in the ICU, and she wasn't able to visit him for the entire two weeks uh, from the time she dropped him off at the door of the emergency department uh, to when he was discharged. I know in our hospital, at least in the ICU, we have a one visit uh, per day for an hour at a time just to try and keep uh, infection um, control issues at bay. Um, I, I would have suspected maybe very different in palliative care. And I know when we came up with these policies, there was an exception made for people that were dying. Um, if you were thought to be stable, we would do everything we could to inter get you to connect with the families. But if you're imminently dying, then we sort of um, lighten those, those criteria. But thankfully, we haven't had that scenario in our ICU. And I'm not sure what our palliative care teams are, but I'm sure they're allowing more than one person in per day. Uh, what about uh, what about you, uh, Mario? Um, for uh, the general, in general terms, we're allowing family to be present by the bedside uh, for uh, imminently dying patients. Um, we do give them PPE, uh, but they are allowed to hold and, uh, hold the hands of the patients and be there as they would otherwise. Um, and uh, we haven't had any super spreading events that I'm aware of because of this. Um, we, we don't allow uh, visitors in the COVID cohorted unit, um, but for non-COVID patients, of course. Um, but I think visitation rules are, are in flux and we'll see what happens as things change here in hospital rollouts. Yeah, and uh, we we haven't allowed family uh, to come visit uh, whatsoever. And uh, either the only time they can visit if uh, if a family member is in uh, even at risk of death, we'll have one visitor at a time. And it's just a uh, lack of PPE and the and the rest. And like Adam said, it's going to continue to be in flux as this uh, continues to evolve. That's policy. But I have to admit, like uh, FaceTiming is difficult when we're all wearing PPE. But there's nothing like extubating a patient and immediately FaceTiming their family so everyone can talk. So um, that's a pretty special thing. So if there's a little silver lining, it's that we've been using technology, I think, across the world uh, to increase communication in very difficult times. Yeah, I got um, dragged into a conversation with uh, two fantastic colleagues, Dr. David Williscroft, who is an eMERGE uh, physician as well as a palliative care doc. And, Dr. Nick Rose, who is an emergency physician at uh, Vancouver General, and they were sort of running, we were sort of discussing uh, terminal extubations, and they were sort of talking about a protocol whereby uh, the terminal extubations would be done, but the patient would be kept, uh, instead of being extubated, because extubation is an AGMP, the feasibility of maybe keeping the endotracheal tube in place with viral filter in place. 
And um, so, so that was an interesting discussion. And that way you could have the family in the room just with their PPE on and you don't have to go through the uh, the AGMP or the presumed AGMP procedure debating and then waiting for a harbor X amount of time depending on if you have a negative pressure room or not. So uh, anyways, interesting times and, and tough on families for sure. Uh, there's a lot of questions coming up about uh, prognostication and, and comorbidities. Um, and uh, someone is asking specifically of, uh, you know, among our younger patients that we've seen in the ICU, uh, was there much obesity and hypertension? So I can't really speak too much to our cases only because it would be uh, potentially uh, privacy uh, concerns. But I can say, and, and others can speak to their experiences or their review of the literature, but certainly obesity seems to be a, a recurrent uh, risk factor among, uh, among young patients time and time again. Um, and then, of course, diabetes, hypertension, all those uh, come into play. Um, prior uh, vascular disease, be it uh, cerebral or, or cardiac, it's all sort of features that come into play. But uh, obesity seems to be a big one. Um, I don't know what, uh, and Donis, you've had the most experience in all of us. What, uh, what have you seen? Yeah, I think, I think the younger patients that I have seen who've required intubation or gotten sick are obese or what I like to call them as American, right? I don't think these are, are, are people who are overly obese. They are certainly have BMIs higher than 25, but they're not morbidly obese. Where they're just people who are on the heavier side and living their lives. They're, they're, they're typical Americans. So yes, there is a um, definitely a, um, a common theme of obesity, but I don't think there's anything more than just being healthier Americans, let's say, for lack of a better term. And I think that's something that I expected when we're hearing about the disease process to be people with uncontrolled diabetes, uncontrolled hypertension, and, and just really sick people and frail people to begin with, but it's often been people who, oh, by the way, I take my amlodipine for my hypertension, or hey, I'm taking my oral uh, medication for my diabetes, uh, and it's pretty well controlled. So I, I don't want people to think that that's, um, that there are people who are brittle diabetics or otherwise who are getting disease, or people who are morbidly obese and bedbound who are, who are suffering the most from this. Well, I have seen, you know, like I said, just thicker, healthier Americans getting it. Agreed. That there's the the common cases we all hear in all the cohorts that uh, it's the 56-year-old hypertensive cardiovascular increased BMI. But I think we all have seen patients who are in their 30s or 40s with very little comorbidities who are very sick from COVID. So when you infect every quartile of the population, you're going to see those sick patients. Um, yeah, and I think ultimately there, there's, there are a lot of scoring um, clinical calculators you can look at that some that include just their physiology and their blood work, uh, but don't go into the, don't include their comorbids and some that do, but I think none of these are validated, so we'll learn as we go forward, but at this point it's hard to hang our hats on any one particular comorbid uh, condition. Uh, Donovan, what are some other questions here? Uh, there's a question here of do patients die from uh, complications of the underlying comorbidities um, more so than from their pneumonia. And there's another question along the line of what criteria, another question was very much along the same line, is what criteria do you use to determine if the death was caused by COVID-19? Um, and uh, those, are, uh, those are great questions. I mean, I think, um, sorry, Adam, you want to, you look like you're... Uh, it's just tough. I, at least in BC, uh, what our uh, autopsy service has said is that autopsies will be, not be done on COVID-19 patients. Um, across the board, just because it's very difficult to get PPE and negative pressure rooms um, in our morgues. So I think, yes, if you die of 
pneumonia-like process that's going on your death certificate if, uh, if I'm on the unit. But it's very different. I think every staff, and we all know there's heterogeneity in signing death certificates. I, I can see Mario and Danish's face too. So. Um, you know, I think we know from, from all our ARDS patients that there's, you know, the four traumas that we talk about uh, that, that occur uh, from the ventilation. And we talk about atelectotrauma and volutrauma and barotrauma, which we all know about as emerge physicians and critical care physicians. But the last form of trauma we don't often talk about is, is biotrauma and the idea that, uh, you know, when the lungs are, are, are being ventilated and when the lungs are inflamed from ARDS or from pneumonia, there's a lot of inflammatory mediators. And of course, all those uh, all those inflammatory mediators uh, sort of interspersed throughout the body, and that's sort of the theory. We'll never be able to prove this, but that's kind of a theory of why patients with ARDS end up dying, oftentimes not of necessarily of hypoxemia, but of multi-organ system failure, because of all those uh, those inflammatory mediators that that rich milieu of inflammation is now spread, and, and then there's innocent bystanders, uh, and we see it all the time with the kidneys and and the liver, and eventually the uh, the cardiac uh, condition as well. So. Um, it's hard to know, but certainly in terms of uh, COVID-19, we've talked a lot about other uh, factors at play here, um, like DVT and, and certainly PEs. We saw a lot of that. I think it was in the Chinese autopsies where a lot of these patients had died of, of PEs. Um, and then we've heard about myocarditis and, you know, whether uh, coronary artery disease, myocarditis. So lots of things at play. But again, were those underlying conditions that were just, um, you know, the heart was stressed with an underlying triple vessel disease. And you know, the, the, the pulmonary hypertension and the hypoxemia threw them over the edge. Um, any comments, uh, Mario or Donish? No, he has covered it from my, from my end. Okay. Um, all right. So uh, what do you think of use of home oximeter monitors uh, for outpatients to determine when a patient needs to go to the ER? Um, so maybe I'll I'll put this one out to uh, to Mario because uh, I know you've done some work with uh, with home health monitoring and, and chatted with the Roth score and those things in the past. Do you want to touch base on this one? So I, I think that it's still largely unknown. Um, we are rolling out a multi-center trial uh, using St. Paul's uh, Community Hospital um, and um, various family medicine clinics to see if. Um, home oximetry can inform uh, presentation to the eMERGE in the setting of a pandemic. However, the one thing that, um, and this kind of really recognizes the fact that you can have people who don't feel short of breath, who can be quite hypoxic. Um, I think that uh, in frail patients, there very likely is a role for this. Um, there has been a role for this in heart failure. Uh, and COPD at least. Uh, so extending that literature, there might be a role here. However, for COVID specifically, there's nothing out there. And I would probably be just doing a service at this point to conjecture which way. Right. Um, in our emergency department, we recently started a program where we'd send home discharge, pa discharge patients with a pulse oximeter and a uh, number for telehealth. Um, again, is it validated? Do we know if it works? No, but it's certainly something we're gonna try here um, at Sinai. And just they just go home with a little care package and a uh, call-in number. I think for surge, it makes a lot of sense that you don't want these patients showing up to the door and needing immediate intubation because they're sat there in the 70s or 60s. That picking them up when they're 85 and having a more controlled scenario makes sense. So good on you, Mario and Danish. Um, 
All right, so we'll quickly get a few more questions here. I think there's one question that's uh, it's hard to read, but I think it's uh, alluding to social determinants of health and uh, probably in relation to disparities in healthcare among different uh, different races. Um, and I think that's uh, you know I think that's always a tough tough one for us to answer, but I think there certainly are you know high risk populations, and we need to to be cognizant of them. And I think there's a question about uh, you know, long-term care workers and uh, and factory workers and and their risk. And I think absolutely, like we need to make sure that uh, you know we're we're working within a single-tier health system and that we we reach out to, to make sure that nobody's feeling like they're being forced to work and and uh, you know people uh, be that monetary uh, that they can't not go to work uh, or that they're being forced to, to work by their their employers. I think. Answering that beyond that, I think, is beyond the uh, the context of this conversation. But certainly, where we are in the states, I think there's been clear evidence that uh, you know the the Hispanic uh, population, that the black population has been particularly hit hard. So I don't know if that's that's what that question is getting at, but uh, um, it's a big question. I think maybe related to that question and related a little bit to home oxygen monitoring is the uh, is the question of how do we how do we reach out to our uh, our rural sites? Because we know that there's a question about uh, in here as well about other crash intubations. We want to obviously avoid that. And certainly early on, we heard about crash intubations happening. And so I know there's a Dr. Jell Coward who's done some great work uh, with the ministry and uh, provincial transport teams to to sort of get patients to community covert community cohort centers away from the rural sites, closer to regional hospitals, where if they are uh, unwell, they can have the same access to to high-level care as anyone else across the country will, and there's a lot of great work done there, and housing people in community centers and hotels and, and whatnot. So, some really great work. And again, uh, thank you to Jill, Jill, uh, Jill Howard and his and his crew for uh, for putting that work together. Uh, the question about uh, crash intubations. I mean, the ones that uh, that I've heard about on the island. Again, we haven't had a lot, and we've had a number of patients that that avoided intubation altogether, but the few that uh, that I know of, uh, they were under controlled circumstances, uh, and both when we did it early on, um, and then we uh, quickly learned from them that, you know, um, we probably didn't need to intubate them, and the third patient came in and sat in our ICU for four or five days hoping intubated and did very, very well. Um, so we haven't seen that, but it's a different story um, for people who may have been presenting very, very late. I don't know, Don, if you've you're at the very opposite end of the spectrum. I think you have had multiple crash intubations, but I don't know, like in terms of healthcare, I don't know if people present late because they have to pay for it and how that plays into it, but you've, you've had quite a few, I believe, have you not? Yeah, I had a few crash intubations, but again, a lot of that was us just, uh, that was our own doing and that we were holding off intubation for as long as possible, not having ICU beds and having these very tenuous patients on the floor. Um, I know at Elmhurst, a lot of the residents, because uh, they rotate between us at uh, Sinai and Elmhurst uh, said that there was a lot of um, some of the Hispanic patients would come in much later in their disease process because again there was there was concern for payments and the rest of it of uh, services. So uh, I can't really speak too much more intelligently about that. Well, thank you, um, thank you, team. I think uh, I didn't realize it's actually uh, coming on to 8:30 here. So apologize, we kind of lost track of time. Um, I think we'll uh, we'll wrap it up. I do want to say a special thank you to uh, to the uh, the four panelists that are with me. So I know Donish and Adam are both uh, working in the ICU this week, and I know we're having uh, busy, busy days. And I know Mario's on for the uh, extracorporeal uh, 
PCLS uh, trauma team at uh, St. Paul. So thank you for doing that. And uh, and finally uh, Donovan, who's always uh, just such a key figure, though he doesn't uh, doesn't um, doesn't come on screen with us here, has done a lot of work for us, and then was working clinically this week as well. So thank you, uh, team, for for putting this together. And again, thank you, Bob, for uh, for asking us to do this, and. Uh, more so for asking us to come back, uh, despite uh, four opportunities to tell us uh, to not come back. So, so thank you for that, and uh, yeah, that's, that's it from from our end, Bob. Thank you. Well, well, thank you. It's just because of the demand from our audience that you've been invited back, and as 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 you have in the other three times, you've provided so much valuable information, and along with sharing your thoughts on such a broad range of, of COVID care topics. So, so really appreciate that, seeing the extra 30 minutes again and, and answering as many questions as you could. And I, I, I know many of you would like to continue hearing more of this incredible panel, but we have reached 90 minutes and, and need to stop. Um, I, I do want to, again, express my sincere gratitude to, to all of you, um, to Dr. Omar Ahmed, to uh, Adam Thomas, Mario Frank, Francis Pergassum, uh, Danish Ahmed, uh, and, and behind the scenes, there's Don, Donovan McDonald. There he is, waving his hand. Thanks, Donovan. You're been fantastic. You got your. I know you're all very dedicated, um, maybe even heroic physicians and excellent educators, who you know are, are are taking your time away from your very busy lives with heavy critical clinical duties to to answer our questions tonight. And and you know can't thank you enough. And I know everyone appreciates you so much. Um, we will. Um, send out the, the slides you'll let us, uh, um, that, that you've presented and any other particular references or um, you know, links uh, when we send out the recording to everybody. So just be aware of that. And, and, um, and I also want to acknowledge our hardworking UBCCP staff behind the scenes who, who are um, Stephanie uh, Amiel, uh, Judy Chen, Desiree Torrios, Kathy Gao, uh, Steph Nguyen, Kate Meffin, Yan Chow, Vivian Lamb, Nina Zorick, and Lindsay Callum, and Michelle Basin, and, and Jenny Barrows. You know, we have a huge crew behind all our webinars and all our COVID resources that we're providing, without whom we couldn't de deliver these webinars or provide all the, all the support that we're, we're trying to do at UBCCPD. I also want to thank all of you who are attending tonight. Um, I hope this session was of value. It certainly was for me. Um, and I would encourage you to take a few moments right now to complete the attendance and evaluation forms that were emailed to you. Uh, that will help you get your study, study credits and also provide us with valuable feedback on tonight's webinar. But lastly, I, I thought you might want to know uh, about um, and register for another webinar that's coming up this Thursday uh, on in our COVID-19 uh, webinar series. It's on um, practice standards and medical legal obligations during COVID-19. And uh, we're going to have a, an excellent panel um, from uh, colleagues and, and experts from the CMPA, as well as the um, Heidi Otter from the College of Physicians and Surgeons of BC. Um, so register if you're interested. Um, I also want to remind you about our a link uh, to our very robust and highly valued COVID-19 resource hub, which we will include in a link uh, in the post-webinar email. So that's it for tonight. Thank you again. Stay well, uh, be safe, and look forward to having you join us again. Thanks for joining us. 
And I'm also pleased to tell you about our two other shows on the UBC Medicine Podcast Network. The Metamorphosis Podcast was created by students for students, and it's long-form interviews with medical specialists about their careers, their passions, and their practice. And we hope that it's going to help med students in navigating their career and choosing a specialty. That's Metamorphosis, spelled M-E-D. Our third show, Primary Care in a Pandemic, looks at the changes in primary care in BC during COVID-19. Doctors Morgan Price and Sarah Fletcher talk about ways primary care clinics can and are adapting to this crisis. They try to keep things real and practical so you can apply these ideas in your practices. Brought to you by UBC's Primary Care Innovation Support Unit, or ISU, in the Department of Family Practice. And please tune in for the rest of our episodes. This has been a presentation of the UBC Medicine Learning Network. 